Exactly a year ago, on the 24th of January of 2018, Paul Romer, then chief economist of the World Bank, stepped down over a scandal flaring up from his interview with the Wall Street Journal a few days earlier. In that interview, he suggested that the political leanings of bank staff may have manipulated the bank's high-profile annual doing business rankings, specifically in the case of Chile, who had dropped down from 34th to 55th in the ranking during the socialist Michel Bachelet's administration. The steep decline had been due to methodological changes rather than any actual deterioration in the country's business environment. Paul Romer's denouncement was interesting in two ways. One, the acknowledgement that the World Bank repeatedly changed the methodology of one of its flagship um, economic reports over several years, which unsurprisingly produced different results. And two, that these changes were often unfair and misleading to the point, he claimed, of a politicized methodology that compromised the rankings. The first contention pointed to the fact that the introduction of new metrics could be responsible for drastic changes in rankings, rather than any meaningful change that actually happens in the field. And the second contention pointed to the fact that ideology rather than data was driving, uh, was driving key World Bank assessments. Uh, in Chile's case, in particular, the bank's methodology appeared to be in direct correlation with the country's politics. For a moment, various developing countries panicked. Um, India, for instance, had just made it to the 100th place of the ranking, a result that was actually an explicit policy, um, policy goal by Moody's government. Nigeria had been congratulated for being amongst the top 10 most improved economies in the world, having moved up 24 places in 2017. Naturally, neither wanted to see any changes to the reports, which appeared to represent, let's say, an empathetic endorsement um, of the country's reforms. So amidst rumours which risked the bank's credibility, Paul Romer quit, quit and then quickly retracted and clarified that he was not aware of a single instance in which someone at the bank published fabricated data. The bank ramped up the explanation for its methodology on the website in a quite defensive manner, I have to say, in order to answer any sort of suspicions over irregularities and then moved on. And one of the most important, interesting parts of this story was not that it revealed that the World Bank was possibly biased, shocking, I know, but that the scandal was itself unfair since changes in methodology were actually a reflection of the concern over a serious and bulletproof process of gathering and analyzing objective data. So controversy explained, the public could absolutely go back to trusting the institution's figures and rankings. And so by now you're wondering why am I talking about Chile in an African studies seminar or Nigeria when the case studies announced are Mozambique and Guinea-Bissau. The reason for this odd introduction is that the anniversary of this episode surrounding the World Bank reveals something that I repeatedly found in the Mozambican and the Guinean cases and that illustrates the main argument of the book. Um, that donor assessments of success and failure, of improvement or deterioration, of progress or setback, and the representations of recipient countries that come to prevail within the donor realm are not simply objective appreciations of their performances by neutral and objective um, observers, practitioners and analysts, as it's claimed. Rather, they are subjective 
um, appreciations of a recipient's trajectory with very concrete implications for the way these countries are known to us and then acted upon. <coughs> so with this introduction, I'm going to develop my argument by answering four research questions. The, the what question. So reality is mediated and interpreted. So which particular account is conveyed by a given representation? The why question. So what purpose does such an account play? Um, the how. How are these accounts produced and reproduced, contested, affirmed, etc.? And the so what? So what are the implications of these particular representations? Um, I'll try to address these questions from a post-structuralist perspective uh, and using the examples of Mozambique and Guinea-Bissau more or less to illustrate the argument. I won't be able to go into much detail because there's not that much space. Um, but first I'd like to start with what I find to be an interesting paradox. Um, that is at the center of the research of my, of my research of the relationship between donor and recipients. So the Western aid industry labors under the assumption that its policies are the outcome of a rationalist analysis of recipients' performances, where quantification plays a predominant role since the end of the Cold War. Since then, there has been great emphasis placed on progress assessment, uh, bringing to the forefront of the, uh, of the aid realm a focus on aid effectiveness, performance standards, good governance. And subsequently, there has been a lot of monitoring and evaluation processes that produce measurable results, which in turn either incite or restrain um, renewed tranches of aid. So the new aid approach entails a significant focus on quantitative indicators in order to guide overall assessments of recipient countries and their trajectories. Now, quantification intends to produce knowledge independent of the researcher and by kind of minimizing the need for some sort of intimate knowledge, personal connections of the field. In other words, the distance and impersonality of the scientific method of data collection and analysis, it's what makes it objective. Um, and it's that objectivity in turn which conveys the authority of expert pronouncements and it's also key to making claims for universality and in this case comparability, right, which is at the, at the heart of rankings. And that's also why it has gained international acceptance. Indeed, this, this actually accounts for a lot of the prestige and power of quantitative methods in the modern aid world. Yet, numbers, graphs, tables, rankings are ultimately forms of social communication. So they're intimately bound to the community they relate to and the social identity of both researchers and subjects of research. They're therefore subjective and dependent on the context in which they are created. This does not mean that there is no validity in relation to the reality they describe. It means, however, that these are not accurate or indisputable descriptions of the outside world. It's a process of social construction. So what matters is not so much reality per se, but how that reality is apprehended. So. A first point here is that data is actually quite unreliable in plenty of these local contexts. Um, so a certain degree of skepticism regarding data collection and methodology is undoubtedly warranted. Uh, but more important is not just about the fact that data might not be accessible, it's also the question regarding who produces and how such data is produced. So 
here my contention and hence the paradox is that this sort of data collection, despite its mask of quantification and universality, is often, and in particular in the donor realm, very personal and even intimate. The opposite of what is intended or the mask that it carries. So, for instance, data collection can often depend on the friend of the aid worker who owns a local company who gets hired to produce a particular report. It's not the impersonal, universal, technocratic United Nations that comes up with these results. Um, a country's assessment might be kind of finalized by a single desk officer being parachuted from the headquarters to talk to specific local pe people who were previously selected by a particular donor agent. You see what I'm, what I'm getting at. So ultimately, these supposedly quantified measurements and assessments exist to convey in what has become a familiar and standardized format a particular <coughs> account. <coughs> so from a post-structuralist perspective, eight facts do not speak for themselves. They are bespoken and spoken for. And reality is not objective and needs to be interpreted. So donor discourses are crucial in articulating the way in which a recipient's reality is to be um, exposed. Um, a closer look at any recipient trajectory points to distinct realities with both negative and positive indicators, often even contradictory, which need to be interpreted. There are competing accounts of performance. So donor discourses will pick and choose, concentrate or ignore, emphasize or downplay donors' criteria as much as recipients' indicators in order to, to construct the story they wish to convey. So the ultimate picture portrayed by these statistics is inevitably partial and often distorted, as the story in Chile um, um, showed. So they're biased towards the outcome the actor actually wants to value. Um, there are always alternative interpretations and solutions. Some may be reconsidered, including those that were previously rejected. And these portrayals ultimately produce dominant discourses of success or failure, be it in particular sectors or kind of regarding the overall representation of a recipient country as happens with narratives, mainstream narratives um, on Mozambique and Guinea-Bissau. <coughs> so, In the, in the book manuscript, I'm, I'm, I look at the cases of Mozambique and Guinea-Bissau from earlier on. So the, I argue that the labels of success and failure attached to Mozambique and Guinea-Bissau precede the 90s. But for the sake of time, the 90s are the moment where this kind of quantification of assessment becomes prevalent. Um, from the 19s onwards, uh, accompanying us a reemergence of a people-centered orientation in age priorities. The criteria for measuring national socioeconomic progress were expanded to encompass not simply measures of economic growth rates, which were along the privileged metric for assessing development, but also a range of indicators selected and shaped to facilitate monitoring and evaluation. So countries became increasingly evaluated according to new indicators. Amongst these stands out, for instance, the UNDP's celebrated Human Development Index, which supposedly conveyed a broader and more comprehensive picture of the well-being, or lack thereof, of recipient countries. Um, and evaluations of success and failure in the accomplishment of aid goals became central to the daily work of donor agencies since the 90s. 
in this context, um, and in particular between 1992 and 2012, Mozambique's development record was hailed by the Western donor community as a success story, while Guinea-Bissau remained inextricably linked to the label of failure. These dominant discourses of success and failure associated with the two countries were broadly shared by the most prominent Western donors, lenders, advisors from the academic and policy world, as well as practitioners from top-level managers <coughs> to field officers and intergovernmental, Western-led intergovernmental and non-governmental organizations. So there was, obviously, there, the, the discourse is never completely homogeneous, but we can point to a dominant hegemonic discourse. <coughs> So in what concerns their apparently divergent paths towards development, Mozambique and Guinea-Bissau were widely perceived to represent the epitome of what was ultimately right and wrong with Africa. There was praise and blame, optimism and pessimism, tolerance with deviations from the prescribed model, or harsh criticisms, um, and they characterized Western aid's opposing discourses regarding the two states during more or less those two decades. And yet... Mozambique and Guinea-Bissau have maintained throughout the post-Cold War era strikingly similar positions as measures in terms of those new indicators that came about in the 90s, namely the Human Development Index. So this is obviously zooming into these countries, but just pay attention to the fact that neither left the bottom 10% of countries in the Human Development Index since it was first created. So clearly there, and in several of the years, um, Guinea-Bissau actually fares better than Mozambique. The same when we're looking at trends since 98 up until 2005. And the same with the Human Poverty Index rank rankings, where they both fare quite badly compared to other countries, and between the two, Guinea-Bissau actually fares better in some of these years. <coughs> so indeed, the realities in Mozambique and Guinea-Bissau in these professed and celebrated indicators of the 90s were never as strikingly dissimilar or divergent um, to the extent suggested by the mainstream narratives. But they did have an impact in terms of age tranches. So the, the tranches of age tended to accompany the labels of success and failure. I can't really go into that debate now, but obviously with this graph, it is actually striking how more and more aid in Mozambique does not appear to make a difference in terms of these same indicators, right? Um, but so there are kind of two puzzles here. Like w the first one is on Mozambique. It's, Mozambique itself is a puzzle, right? So Mozambique's performance versus the label of success. And the second puzzle um, has to do with the comparison between the two and the fact that they have some similar socioeconomic indicators of development, yet they have opposite labels and perceptions from the Western donor community. Um, so this leads to the main question, right? So what then drives the Western donor community's labeling of a recipient country's trajectory as a success or a failure? And what are the implications of these labels? In other words, how do they come about, how they have been sustained or contested, and what are their performative effects? So how productive are these labels? Um, these uh, discrepancies in terms of, discrepancies in terms of um, the labels and the socioeconomic indicators, namely in the case of Mozambique, which is a more studied um, case, um, are present in the more critical literature, but the, the more critical literature still remains within a positivist appraisal of 
the country's performances. So it contests statistics, it points to inaccurate portrayals on the part of donors. And my argument here is not to insist whether Mozambique is or is not um, a success, or whether Guinea-Bissau is or is not a failure, but to emphasize the existence of competing accounts and understand particular donors' biases and subjective choices. So why is Mozambique consistently described as a success when an alternate story could plausibly be told in which it is cast as more of a failure? Or, and so what is interesting is not so much the fact that we can identify failures as well as successes in the Mozambican trajectory, but rather why and how the dominant narrative, mainstream narrative, came to focus predominantly on the successes and minimized or accommodated the failures. The other point is obviously why is the fact that Guinea-Bissau's human development ranked consistently close and often higher than that of Mozambique, ignored by the donor community. So donors play a significant role here um, in determining how the story is to be told and what representation prevails. Um, and within this post-positivist <laughs> approach that I propose that you might not agree with, um, I think it's quite interesting to understand how this is quite dialectic. So how there's, uh, the, the discourse is shaped by the relationship and also constitute these relationships in return. Um, the discourses of success and failure should be understood as shorthands for the representations for which they stand. And they should be interpreted, and that's one of the points, that in, in a macro-level analysis, they should be interpreted as um, basically uh, binary categories that translate the positions of particular countries in um, the international power, power relation context. What I mean by that is that success and failure are uh, new emergences of categories that we saw before that as in donor-recipient or we saw before that as developed-developing, uh, north-south. So one way of looking at this um, in terms of the labels is to understand success and failure as something that is attached to the recipient by the donor in the context of a power relation. Um, so at the macro level, one needs to understand in particular case studies why it's important to attach the label of success to a particular country or the label of failure. So what's, what's happening in terms of this context of power relations? And, but I don't feel that this is enough. So there's another level of explanation that is more of a micro-level explanation. It has to do with the institutional and personal relations that are established between the donor and the recipient country. So there seems to be very clearly a an organizational imperative for both success and failure. So the organizational imperative for success is relatively um, clear. There is a particular paradigm of eight paradigm that is proposed by donor countries. They want to make sure that that eight paradigm is validated by what's happening in the field. And, and so claiming success stories here and there validates the model, validates Western donor hegemony in terms of um, the, the relationship with the recipient. But it's also important to have fail, uh, failed states or cases of failure because they also help in this, what uh, Wade calls the art of paradigm maintenance. So the paradigm maintenance actually needs su success and failure. And it works more or less in this kind of particular way. So 
in, in the case of success stories, uh, the donor attaches himself to the success. So you will go into, let's say, CEDA's website, the Swedish Development Agency, and you will find more or less when it's talking about Mozambique, uh, Sweden has been in Mozambique and has been a donor for Mozambique over I don't know how many decades, basically since the liberation, the liberation war. And so it has a vested interest in showing its commitment to Mozambique, hence Mozambique's success reflects on Sweden as a donor in terms of its, of its success. It works differently in terms of the failed, um, of the failure cases um, in which the donor community repeatedly endorses this um, way of dealing with recipient countries that are called failed states or poor performers, etc., which is to internalize blame and externalize the solution. So basically it detaches itself from the failure by saying that for whichever reasons that are internal to the countries, these countries are failing, uh, namely because they're not following the prescribed model or because their internal elites are intractable, but it detaches itself from the failure. But it also is important in, in this aspect of the art of paradigm maintenance because donors are always looking for an opportunity to go back in. So even in the cases of failure, it needs to try and validate the model as well. And so these relationships might be more unstable and unreliable in terms of the connection with the recipient, but they're never completely scratched, right? There's, there's always some sort of repetition. Um, so for the case of Mozambique, most reports between 2000 and 1992, after the end of the war, the civil war, and 2012, because in 2013 uh, the Mozambican case became more problematic for the level of success. I'm sure you'll want to ask me about it in the Q&A. Uh, but Mozambique showed up as the example of an institutional, of, of the organizational imperative for success. So from Kofi Annan's quote, the best possible antidote to the skeptics and cynics about Africa, the independence headline, Mozambique, the nation that proves aid works, or the Wall Street Journal, the Mozambique miracle, obviously referring to the neoliberal transition, um, or this one beating the odds. So in the context of a complicated continent, here's Mozambique beating the odds and sustaining inclusion in Mozambique's growing economy. Guinea-Bissau has, uh, this is also reflected in terms of um, Mozambique as a typical donor darling. So Mozambique has been amongst the top 20 um, recipients for the last, for basically three decades, um, which is quite striking because Mozambique isn't geopolitically important like Afghanistan, for instance, although it has some, some geopolitical importance, it's not comparable in terms of the geopolitics agenda of major powers. And so it does denote some sort of investment in the success of the country. Guinea-Bissau, on the other hand, was labeled as difficult partnership country, poor performance. Uh, the Reuters um, had a, headline, a very interesting headline in news saying donors have last chance to save Bissau from chaos. But then at the same time, every time there is some sort of change in Guinea-Bissau, uh, then and in donors want to go back in, they'll say something like supporting Guinea-Bissau's fresh start to a more prosperous future or Guinea-Bissau is ready to move forward with the support of the EU. So this, these relations are, relationships are unstable because they fluctuate a lot, uh, but there is no um, complete um, um, destruction of the ties, right? 
the other part of the of the argument at the micro level is in terms of personal relationships. So there are specific ties between donor agents and local actors that play a role in the discourse of success or failure. Uh, foreign aid, I argue here, is more personal than the literature accounts for. It's not difficult to have an to be on an interview with a donor agent and after one beer, if it's not an interview and it's just in the social context, they will be saying things like, I like Mozambique. Uh, or they can say things like, Mozambicans are less aggressive than South Africans. I like it here. So there's, there's a certain personal relationship with, with um, recipients that um, is important. And this contributes to a certain bias and preconceptions. So... In, the, in some of my interviews, the, um, the donor agents in Mozambique had chosen Mozambique. They wanted to go to Mozambique because it was a success story. Um, it was, they didn't end up there like happens a lot in Guinea-Bissau. Or it doesn't happen as often in Mozambique as it happens in Guinea-Bissau to have job openings that are never actually filled. Um, so there's something personal about how these donor agents relate to the people in the field. Uh, it's also quite important in terms of network. So there's a clear kind of network of donor agent, of donors, um, not donor agents, of corporates, uh, um, as they call them, um, in Mozambique that has lasted since basically the 80s up until now. Um, so what I mean by this is that the idea that donor institutions are spaces of personal interaction and we tend in the literature to disregard this aspect of the constitution of relationships and how they can then be acted upon. Um, there's also another aspect here which is a lot of these relationships do tend to become quite patrimonial. We see that very often in terms of the elite in these countries and how they relate to donors. Um, but also at, at other levels it's important because obviously um, the, um, the aid industry functions as, from the perspective of extroversion, first works as um, a site for access for power and finance, right? Um, there's also another quite interesting aspect of these personal relationships, which is how donors can actually be managed by recipient countries. So some recipient countries are extraordinarily skillful and strategic at mobilizing the label of success and failure. So... Mozambique, for instance, Frelimo has used several times, Frelimo, the, the party in power since uh, independence, since ever, um, Frelimo used the label of success uh, attached to it by donors to claim internal success in terms of elections, etc., and to um, basically um, cause a certain fear amongst internal voters that changing to a different elite could cause problems with um, the international community. Um, on the other hand, Mozambique, uh, Guinea-Bissau has used the label of failure quite productively as well when it says, uh, we, we, you, sh you know, we, this time, uh, this is a fresh start and we need to move uh, away from this failed state and we really need your help and, so they've, and we need funding for that. So they mobilize this as well. Um, so there's uh, both institutional and personal relationships tend to work in a way that reinforces these labels and act um, dialectically. So I don't have time to go into um, Guinea-Bissau, but I wanted to talk a bit about... Um, 
Mozambique's kind of tipping points and where the label of success comes from. So like I said, it actually starts quite before uh, the 90s because it starts with the Liberation War, which was considered an important um, um, moment for Mozambique's relation with the international community. And then it moves on to Mozambique as uh, one of the important states in the anti-apartheid movement, being basically subject to aggression by Southern Africa. And so there was a particular relationship with the donor community that led to Mozambique being seen as being on the right side of history. And the right side of history meant funding and aid coming in. Um, the next moment is the end of the Civil War in 1992, where basically Mozambique becomes uh, a product of the international community's intervention. So the, the mediation of the Civil War is quite internationalized. Um, and so the, the international community has a role to play in Mozambique's success from the beginning, from the end of the Civil War. And that is then reflected on the international community being committed to making sure that the peace agreement is sustainable and that is translated into a peacekeeping mission in, in Mozambique. Um, there are all sorts of praises of that UN peacekeeping mission. And it becomes also later a model for the international financial institutions with incredible growth rates, um, which don't actually translate into human development, but incredible growth rates are shown basically as um, Mozambique as an ideological success. Uh, Mozambique is also involved in democratic transition in the 90s. That is basically that swipes the whole continent um, of Africa and Mozambique does not remain aside. Um, and this is continuously translated into an increase in the number of donors and, an in and also a more coordinated efforts on the part of donors to be invested in this story. Um, so the idea here is that there is... Um, what I show in more detail in the book is that there is basically uh, a success, success being constructed because the label works in a very productive way. So when there's successful mediation by, um, in this case, an Italian NGO, Mozambique becomes a success case for a second track uh, mediation. So look at how it worked so well here. Lessons learned, let's look at Mozambique. Um, then it's also um, successful conflict resolution to the end of the civil war. The peace agreement is, uh, is shown to be um, an important um, example, and also the UN, the UN peacekeeping success. So in all these moments, um, Mozambique is being showcased. And the more it is showcased, the more donors come in, and the more donors are invested in maintaining the success. Um, Post-conflict reconstruction is supposed, supposedly goes quite well in terms of the mainstream narratives up until 2013 when there are renewed hostilities, which the international community had a difficulty trying to kind of accommodate. Um, but all these impressive economic growth, multi-party democracy just basically meant that Mozambique and headlines on Mozambique in most reports were an outlier in terms of what were, generally speaking, quite depressing um, accounts of other African countries. So it kept being showcased and, and, uh, and seen, but always as something that was Western-sponsored, that, that the donor community had um, vested interest in. This um, prevailing representation of success has basically originated a particular favorable predisposition on the way 
Mozambique is treated um, and was treated namely during this period. And this also helps explaining why the label of success was so sticky even as there was growing criticism um, of this mainstream narrative. Um, there are some what I call um, coping strategies on the part of donors when the dominant, the dominant narrative is faced with contestation. Um, so one strategy is to basically just kind of ignore that there is something that is not a success. Um, and these are strategies that I saw from reading endless reports by um, donor agents or interviews. Um, so another one is to replace. So if this figure isn't particularly favorable to Mozambique, maybe this one is, and so let's highlight this one instead. Um, accommodate in the sense of justifying failures that need to be acknowledged. They can't be hidden. Um, marginalizing in the sense of marginalizing criticism. So criticism there was seemed to be too harsh. They were marginalized from the dominant discourse or ultimately even hiding um, uh, facts that were contradictory with the dominant narrative. These strategies basically reveal donors' biases and preconceptions. And I'll just give you a couple of examples. So one of the things that was striking to me in reading lots of, the of reports during this time was that even though we had this overall discourse of how human everyone here knows what's the human development index, um, because it was celebrated as a, an incredible indicator of countries' well-being. And so parallel to that discourse that said that this is such an important indicator, it kept not being mentioned in reports because the Basically, as we, as we saw um, in the earlier slide, Mozambique never really left at the bottom 10% of countries in terms of human development index. And so it was a problematic statistic. And so for a long time, same with human poverty index. And so it was human poverty index, I can't even remember when it was mentioned. It was just kind of not, not mentioned at all and ignored. On the other hand, if you read reports on Mozambique, they tend to em oh, sorry on Guinea-Bissau, they tend to emphasise particular aspects. So, for instance, this one assumes that automatically, according to the Human Development Index, the country is ranked 178th out of 188 countries and remains one of the poorest countries in the world. Over two thirds of the population survives on less than uh, 1.9 a day. This is like the introduction to one of the World Bank reports. There is no hiding here. Another of the strategy was replacing. So uh, some figures are contested because there are others that relate more or less to the same topic that have different figures. So for instance, Sweden does this. Sweden has been an active development partner with Mozambique since independence in 1975 and is currently one of the largest bilateral donors in the country. See how it attaches itself to... Uh, Mozambique. Its present portfolio includes a long-term support to the province of Nyasa. Nyasa has historically been one of the poorest and most isolated provinces in the country, but it has also seen one of the largest and most consistent drops in its poverty rate from 69.4% to 41, 54.1 to 31.9%. This was in 2008-2009 when there was a lot of criticism on the fact that uh, human poverty index in Mozambique wasn't actually showing much results. There were a lot of critical reports saying that uh, some advancement in terms of uh, 
particular categories of people that had risen above the poverty line were basically replaced by other people. And so the, there was some stagnation in terms of the fight against poverty. What Sweden does is choose a particular province where there was a decrease in poverty, as opposed to looking at the overall figure, which was <laughs> contesting the dominant narrative and more unfavorable. Um, the IMF in 2009 chooses a different survey that shows a uh, reduction of poverty in Mozambique from 69% to 53%. This is a contested statistics, but that's the one they're using uh, in this YMF report. <coughs> On the other hand, Guinea-Bissau gets like the full picture and more. So Guinea-Bissau has suffered from decades of political instability and remains a fragile state. Since its independence in 1974, there have been four coup d'etats along with many additional coup attempts, the highest number in the world. There is absolutely no need to emphasize this part of the highest number in the world, but the comparison shows here as a way of basically introducing the country. Um, another example of accommodation. So Mozambique is, this is in 2013, the war ended in 92. Mozambique is still recovering from the effects of a protracted civil war that ended 16 years ago and destroyed much of the country's key infrastructure while delaying investment and development of basic services. And the report goes on to show the improvements in comparison with this introduction. Uh, or the UNDP, Mozambique's reconstruction and recovery have been remarkable and are widely recognized as a success story. Notwithstanding this, there are some major development challenges facing the country. So see how in Guinea-Bissau they start off with this is the poorest country, in the, one of the poorest countries in the world, has a huge amount of coup d'etats where Mozambique is. This is going well. Of course, there are some challenges. So the, the, the language uh, attributed to one or the other is quite striking in terms of difference. It's also quite... Appease, unappeasable when it comes to Guinea-Bissau. So this desk officer for Guinea-Bissau that I interviewed said, oh, in, in a really kind of frustrated, there was a, there was a lot of attitude in his um, interview, and he was clearly frustrated when he said, oh, enough about the civil war. It was 10 years ago. Just, just move on. Stop using it as an excuse. So compared to the report on Mozambique where they're like, Mozambique is still suffering from the civil war. There's a big difference in the interpretation. Um, this is one of my favorite quotes from interviews on, on Mozambique. This is from a DFIT staff member. When I was asking him precisely about the critics of the, the dominant narrative on Mozambique, he stepped back and he said, well, you know, we need to shield Mozambique from ex what he called extreme criticism. And I took that to mean unfair criticism. So if you take, and he explained, right, if you take into account the fact that Mozambique was one of the poorest countries in the world not that long ago, and that it had a big civil war, etc., you can't just be too harsh on the criticism. On the other hand, for Guinea-Bissau, there's this, this is the last opportunity for Guinea-Bissau after this, no more, which obviously <coughs> never happens. Um, but even, like, skepticism is always kind of prevalent in the discourse. So this, um, um, this, this um, news from Reuters, uh, quoting a Western diplomat anonymously, with this election, Bissau is trying to play the part of a democratic state. The big question is, will they just be going through the motions, or will it for real. So there's a lot of skepticism um, kind of flowing through here. Um, another strategy that donors use actually to completely 
hide problems with the Mozambican um, uh, with Mozambique. So uh, when there were um, elections in Mozambique where there were accusations of fraud, um, the, the discourse on Mozambique was that there were some irregularities but everything was fine, but then thanks to WikiLeaks, uh, WikiLeaks cables, we find that US Embassy in Maputo is sending cables to the State Department where it says um, that the EU election observer missions report is very displeased Diplomats from several EU member countries criticized the kid gloves approach in failing to apportion blame on the ruling Filimo party for the flawed election cycle. And the US embassy fears that this country is more likely to slip further away from a multi-party democracy, something that was not said out loud publicly about the elections at the time, but then was kind of hidden in these cables. Um, Guinea-Bissau, on the other hand, gets the other type of treatment. When we're discussing the problem of drug trafficking in Guinea-Bissau, it's called the first narco state in the world. And this US Drug Enforcement Agency official that's quoted in The Guardian says basically that Guinea-Bissau is a failed state and drug trafficking is like moving into an empty house. Um, so it's just everything is just kind of out there from that perspective. Um, this has very clear political implications. I'm just mentioning one example that I find quite interesting. So Mozambique becomes eligible for funding for the Millennium <coughs> Challenge account in 2005, even though it didn't meet the criteria. And they justify like this. Mozambique was one of the three countries of the Millennium Challenge account, uh, the Millennium Challenge Corporation determined to be eligible for MCA funding, even though they did not fully meet the selection criteria. The MCC board determines that although Mozambique's rating against MCA criteria was at or below the median in relation to other candidate countries, and the italics are mine, Mozambique's progress and achievements were not adequately reflected in the indicators. So even when the indicators excluded Mozambique from being part of the Millennium Challenge account, someone overruled the indicators and said, well, generally speaking, the progress, the subjective progress of Mozambique uh, merits its uh, being eligible to, for this funding. On the other hand, Guinea-Bissau has had conditionality on top of conditionality being imposed. There's a serious problem in terms of lack of disbursement of aid pledges. So donors will say we'll make pledges of the next amount and then very rarely they actually fulfill it. There's instances of aid suspension for two, three years, so large periods of time. This is a country that, so more or less foreign assistant is, represents 80% of uh, Guinea-Bissau's national budget. So it's com entirely dependent on the exterior. Aid suspension is a big thing. Uh, and there has been donor withdrawal. So people like Sweden literally closing up and leaving. So just to finish up and as tentative conclusions, um, I think the, the two cases show that there is biases and preconceptions all sorts of values and even emotions uh, at the core of the decision and policy-making processes, even though they're supposed to be counter to the decision and policy-making processes, but they're actually at the center of it. And donors' active role, have an active role in interpreting these facts, supposedly facts on the ground. Um, the discourse here of label and, and the, the discourse of success and failure are particularly performative because they become intrinsic to the processes of knowledge, knowledge production and policy making. So if there is a, 
a discourse of success, facts on the ground are going to be interpreted according to that main narrative, or they're going to be considered outliers and either explained or eventually contest the dominant narrative. But there is a dominant narrative that gets um, constructed. Um, the other point that I find important is that there's, there was nothing inevitable or natural about the construction of Mozambique as a success or Guinea-Bissau as a failure. It has a lot to do with a particular context in time in which Mozambique played a particular role uh, in shaping and validating Western global hegemony, namely when in the 90s the UN and other donors were prepared to enter a new phase of interventionism and Mozambique kept validating all the prescriptions or was seen as validating all the prescription, the prescribed models. And so at that moment in time, it played a crucial role. Um, and then it was a matter of kind of reinforcing um, this discourse. And then at the micro level, I think it's quite striking the type of relations that are established between donor institutions and personal um, donor agents with um, the local um, um, actors in producing and reproducing these labels. Um, I also found that there was, like, like this, this example of the Millennium Challenge account, that there's a sort of feedback loop. So the label becomes constitutive of donor relations, and then it helps to maintain the label. So if Mozambique had been excluded from the Millennium Challenge account, it would have had less funding. And if that was happening in several other instances, it might not have been the success story that uh, was labeled um, between those, those years. Um, so narratives of success and failure, they get attached and then, then they allow us to act upon it in a particular manner. Um, it also, in, wider, in a more wider um, understanding, these labels temporarily freeze donor-recipient identities. So it's very hard for Guinea-Bissau to get out of the label of failure. Um, it's basically constructed as a problematic case, and it's very hard to um, remove itself from that uh, constraint. Another, just to conclude, obviously another important um, awareness here is that labeling is in itself a technique of exercising power. You have the labeler and the labeled. Even if the labeled can manipulate the label a bit to its advantage, it's still in a very imbalanced power relations that this happens. Um, and another point is that labels can actually become obstacles to peace and development. And I think the Mozambican case and the fact that for a long time the dominant narrative of success hid a lot of the problems with that trajectory um, show that these labels can actually become obstacles in the end. Thank That's you very it. much. Thank you.